0: Welcome to Artisan Advisors Unfiltered. I'm Jim Atkins, a founder and managing partner of Artisan Advisors and your host for today's Artisan Unfiltered podcast, which happens to be our first in this series. Before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit about us and why we've launched Artisan Advisors Unfiltered. Jeff Foss and I are both former presidents and we founded Artisan Advisors in 2009 at the height of the Great Recession. Back then, community banks were in real trouble. So we put together a group of veteran bankers to provide strategic, operational, financial, and risk management services that would help community banks not only survive the recession, but lay the groundwork to succeed long-term in driving financial performance and creating shareholder value. Over the last 12 years, it's been our privilege to work with hundreds of banks and credit unions to make them the best they can be, and it's been a privilege to support one of the main drivers of the U.S. economy, the community banking industry. With that said, we want to share with you in an unfiltered, informal way, some insight into some of the interesting people in our industry. Any of you who have ever met us uh, know that we can talk, so that's what we're going to do, talk with industry experts about issues that matter to you. We're kicking this series off with something very special, an interview with the legendary, and I don't use that word lightly, Thomas Fitzgibbon. If you've been around community banking in Chicago, Tommy, as he's affectionately referred to, needs no introduction. For the uninitiated, Tommy's been a force in community banking for decades, and there's not much he hasn't done. Here's a few highlights. He led Talmer Bank and Trust, a $10 billion publicly traded community bank, and launched and led MB Financial Community Development Corporation, a subsidiary of MB Financial Bank. He sits on the boards and committees of multiple organizations like the Neighborhood Works Capital Corporation, the House of the Good Shepherd Shuttle for the Women, and the Chicago Community Loan Fund, among others. He's a former adjunct professor of real estate finance at the Cal State Graduate School of Business at DePaul, and he's a decorated naval combat veteran. He's a true renaissance man, and we're fortunate to have Tommy join Artisan as a managing director with a focus on strategy, compliance, CRA, and organization. Tommy, welcome to the kickoff episode of Artisan Advisors Unfiltered Podcast Series.
1: Thank you, Jim. I'm looking forward to it. This should be a good conversation.
0: It should be. So before we get into the banking business, tell me where where are you originally from? I never asked you that.
1: <laughs> well, I'm originally from St. Paul, Minnesota. That's where I was raised and went to school. Uh, but I was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, during World War II. That'll tell you a little bit about me. <laughs> you're
0: you're at heart, at heart you're you're an Okie at heart. Huh?
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, I grew up in the, in the Twin Cities and uh, okay. went to uh, the University of Minnesota, graduated from there, and then uh, um, uh, went into the banking world right away.
0: Right. So were you from a, are you from a big family, a small family? Oh. With
1: the... Well, you know, after World War II, it was all about raising families. And so I was the oldest of eight surviving. Mm. Uh, there yeah. were nine, but uh, uh, one has passed. And uh, uh, so there are lots of cousins and and uh, aunts and uncles and all sorts of uh, of things. So yeah, it was a large family. Um, uh, uh, grew up in a in a neighborhood with lots of kids. So yeah. it was uh, it was a great experience.
0: What was your dad? What did your dad do? I'm just curious. My,
1: well, my dad, you know, after World War II, there weren't a lot of jobs around, uh, and he worked for the state of Minnesota for a while, uh, and. Uh, uh, then uh, went into the banking wor- world. So he was the president of a small savings bank uh, in St. Paul
0: Okay, okay, and so you went off was it just a natural thing you you're going to University of Minnesota and that was it Why did you go to the greatest school in the world University of Tennessee? You know,
1: <laughs> <I don't- laughs> well, you know, it was uh, uh, in those days you didn't go too far Outside of St. Paul. I mean it was one of those things where you didn't travel a lot so uh, uh, I, I would have loved to have gone to right, Tennessee right. and and yeah. the rest, but uh, didn't get a chance to do that.
0: Well, Minnesota is a great school. I've been through that area, and it's fantastic. Uh, I don't want to talk a whole lot about it, but you know, you're a Navy combat veteran, and, and mm-hmm. I always find it interesting to talk to people who have had that experience. And just you know, when you when you do something like, did you do that after college?
1: Was that- yes. Yeah, I was barely 21 when I went into the service. Oh, Went through, uh, 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 you know, the the aviation fundamental school, OCS, uh, then flight training at Pensacola, and then uh, off to uh, uh, the USS Bonham Richard, which uh, I served on for a while, and and then I was uh, uh, stationed uh, in uh, Vietnam at uh, Cameron Bay Marine Corps Air Station for a while as well.
0: Right, right, and so you you leave the confines of the beautiful, lovely, calm University of Minnesota, (laughs) and you're thrust into war. And and how does that, you're 21, 22. I I guess that grows you up fairly quickly, I would
1: think. You bet it does. And those are things that uh, uh, you you either mature, and and thank goodness for the leadership in the military who kind of guided me uh, through all of this. Uh, There's nothing better than having a Navy chief tell you Mm -hmm. what you need to do. If you listen to the Navy chief, uh, you'll get along just fine. And so that's what I did all my life, all my career.
0: Right. So you come out of the Navy uh, and you go right into the banking business?
1: Yeah, I I, I started out with uh, uh, what is today U.S. Bank. It used to be called First National Bank of St. Paul. Part of this was in the days when uh, branch banking wasn't allowed. So they were part of the First Bank Systems, which was a holding company that owned a lot of the first banks and it is today U.S. Bank.
0: Yeah, so you come out, You, I would assume you're a very mature uh, young man uh, having that military experience. Yeah. So you get your first job. What was your first
1: job in the banking space? I was a home improvement loan officer. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> then there I went, go. Then I went through uh, management training and then uh, shortly after that, I, I can't remember exactly what year but uh, probably in the in the early uh, 80s uh went off to Washington DC I was recruited to put together a uh, a group of uh, failing thrift institutions if you remember in the 80s uh, yeah and uh, took it public in in uh, in 85 uh yeah. and uh, then subsequently sold it in 1990 to uh, what is today Wells Fargo and yeah. I left yeah. the bank at that point yeah. right and, uh, uh, then uh, shortly after that was uh, recalled for a short period of time of active duty in the first segment of Desert uh, Storm. It was called Desert Shield. So I was right. gone for about six months and settled in the Chicago area after that.
0: So, you you know, I, I would imagine it's like this in the military. It's certainly like this. And I've never had any military experience, but I've had a lot of work experience. And you need mentors, right? You need people to yep. bring you along. And, and I would think that... Uh, you know, you get to your first bank job and, you know, I would assume, did you have mentors that were kind of looking for looking after you, pushing you along, getting you in the right spots, trying to get you to learn things? Did you see yeah. that or did you experience that?
1: Very much so. I think the, the real true value of mentorship in any uh, enterprise and particularly in banks is mm-hmm. the real benchmark for how an individual as well as an institution can be successful. The folks that uh, I looked up to out in Washington and then uh, here in the Chicago market really were helpful in um, uh, guiding my career in the right direction.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, back in the day, it was, it was tradition to bring the young people up and to show them and teach them. Are you concerned, you know, we're everything's remote now for a lot of reasons, obviously the pandemic and things like that, but remote banking and, and different ways of working, does, does that worry you about bringing up new leaders? Is that something that uh, causes you some concern of, for the future of our industry?
1: Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that I uh, really uh, enjoyed tremendously was uh, recruiting individuals at the at the college level who were in finance, and then bringing them into the institution and setting them through yeah. a, a a very intensive, if you will, development program. And those people who were successful in going through that are the leaders today. I can count on hundreds um, who now are in leadership right. in the banking world. And so uh, we look to um, that kind of an experience as a way of growing uh, leaders of the right. future.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I went through one myself. And. You know, they were very prevalent in, the, in the back in the days, you know, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s. And then we kind of, the industry went through a cost savings kind of thing. And a lot of groups, uh, a lot of banks stopped doing it. And uh, it had a ripple effect as well, because sometimes, you know, the banks would train these, these young people. Uh, they <laughs> would find out in a couple, three years that they didn't like a bigger bank. They wanted something smaller. So this talent would drift down right. to smaller banks and, and infiltrate and, and feed smaller banks, but we don't have that. I I often think that, you know, s- small community banks need to do a lot more in regard to attracting young people. Uh, and right out of college, I, 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 I haven't been on too many college campuses recruiting in, in a while, but uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of community bank recruitment going on at that level.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it is either, but I do know that uh, during my tenure at MD Financial Bank, We didn't go to the big schools. We didn't go to the University of Chicago. We went to the smaller downstate universities and and out in the western part of the the state as well. Uh, Again, because we felt that it was important. One of the things that's important for young people, they wanted to experience living in a large community like Chicago. And yeah. uh, they, they may have come from, from uh, Kankakee or somewhere else, uh, you know, yeah. and this was a way for them to experience Chicago and experience banking at the same time. And actually, the, the mutual benefit there for the banking industry was they got to be able to envision how that individual could add value to the company down the road.
0: And, you know, certainly, a, you know, big schools, a very famous school, or wonderful institutions. Yeah. I do think a lot of times the smaller schools get overlooked and and uh as, as someone that kind of employed this this strategy i always like to recruit somebody that had a little bit of a something to prove not that i didn't like the other people too but when i saw somebody that was kind of from a working class background as i am uh my dad was a union steel worker i, I don't know i always felt like there was a little bit of a chip maybe it was my own insecurity or what, sure. but i like to, I to recruit, recruit somebody that just had that I'm gonna prove that, you know, maybe I'm just as good as these other people.
1: I think we're in a paradigm shift though, in terms of this remote, you know, the training that uh, takes place and that kind of an internship, if you will, or leadership development program. But it's also understanding the bank culture. What is the culture of the bank? And it's so hard right. to do that, hard to do that in a remote process. But like I, like you said, I, I hope we get back to that very quickly.
0: Just one more thing before we move on. I, I agree so much because you learn watching seasoned leaders. You know, yes. I learned that there was tough things and I saw that my boss or my boss's boss and they're dealing with things. And I'm watching and learning how they're dealing with it or how not to deal with it. And when you're kind of sheltered because of, you know, the remote situation, you don't get that benefit of just observing. And that worries me quite a bit uh, when it comes to development. But moving on a little bit, uh, everything changes, right? I mean, yeah. look, looking back over your career, what are some of the milestone events that kind of stand out in your mind?
1: Well, I think a lot of these changes were brought about by uh, congressional actions and uh, new laws and regulations. I know when I first got into the banking business, there wasn't any Community Reinvestment Act. There wasn't a Truth in Lending Act. There wasn't a Fair Housing Act. I mean, all of this stuff came about in the 70s. And I think what it did was it forced yeah. the institutions to think differently about the market. I remember when my son was 12 years old, we went, we went out to Washington, D.C., so that's 39 years ago. Uh, uh, to testify uh, before the Senate on the extension of the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. So HMDA, right, the the ability to gather information about customers that you looked at and made a decision, maybe it was a denial, maybe it was an approval. Uh, And, uh, you know, I looked at that, I looked at it as really a management uh, analysis that we needed to do for the industry itself for the individual bank uh, in order for us to determine whether or not we were having success in making home loans to uh, people of color, uh, women. And so uh, uh, that was a a real watershed, uh, I think, uh, event. CRA, of course, which has been around for more than 50 years now, is uh, something that I think helped boards of directors understand what their Obligations were in terms of making capital available in low and moderate income communities, and I think that was an extremely important. So that's a that's a watershed event, I think, as well. I think without without a doubt, the the biggest um, uh, I say watershed was the uh, establishment of the secondary market for mortgages, Fannie yeah. Mae and Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae. That was in the '70s, uh, which helped. You know, in the old days, one of the reasons why the thrift industry was adversely impacted um, was that interest rates on deposits went way up, and they were saddled with loans sitting in the vault at interest rates that were very low. And so a lot of them went away as a result. And so, if they were able to liquidate some of those mortgages, it would have been helpful. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it didn't didn't occur. so, so, I think the establishment of the secondary market was another watershed event, uh, and probably has contributed to more opportunities for home ownership for people in the country.
0: Right, right. You know I think in in not only from a positive standpoint, but I, I think the the whole secondary market uh, operation also had, you know, an interesting effect on the community bank space because I think in, to some level it took a number of their businesses away. Mm-hmm. Or they, they let them drift away. You know, you all of a sudden, you know, you're securitizing home loans and you're securitizing car loans and the community bank space is all of this kind of market, Wall Street kind of activity, secondary market activity comes in and infiltrates some traditional community bank products. We lose products or we've walked away from or whatever, but we lost products and we got down to relying on, of course, CNI and, and even more so community real estate or, mm-hmm. or commercial real estate. So uh, I, I think you're right. I think that the, the secondary market, the mortgage market was huge. And I think it had some them securitization stuff did have some problem or did get some problems in the community bank in other ways. Well, uh, yeah,
1: but, I mean, because it forced them, uh, forced all of the, the industry. To focus on new standards that weren't in place before, loan-to-value ratios, income-to-debt yeah. ratios, and, and appraisal requirements that uh, weren't in place before. Right. So I think that that's uh, um, those were things that the industry had to learn uh, and had to acquire. Uh, and then as things went on, you know, with disclosure requirements and and yeah. um, uh, 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 flood insurance, another you know, <laughs> so those, those things were. Uh, were were significant in terms of um, challenges for the industry.
0: And, of course, technology, right? I mean, uh, sea yep. change in technology over the last 10, 15 years, it, you know, it's amazing what, uh, what, what's happening. I don't know if it's the same, same topic or not, but, you know, over your career, over my career, uh, which uh, you and I are, you might be, uh, got me by a few years, but we've spent a lot of the same decades in the business. You know, the community, we've shrunk it from 15,000 banks to 5,000 banks. And most of, most of those banks we lost were community-type banks. And does yep. that, the concentration of banking assets, does that bother you? Or should it bother anybody? Or should we just say, oh, it's that's what's happening, and that's the way it is, and we live with it?
1: Um, well, you know, it's not that I'm a prognosticator of, uh, of the weather. But in 1983, I sort of said, you know, this is what's going to happen, which yeah. was the consolidation in the industry. The other thing, I think, just one of the things that forced the consolidation was the introduction of uh, mortgage banking in both the commercial uh, real estate space as well as the residential. Uh, now, residential mortgages, uh, roughly 87% of all residential mortgages are not done by the banking or thrift industry. They're done by the independent mortgage bankers. So, so there's, a, there's, again, another paradigm shift it yeah. began really in the late 80s early 90s
0: right you know we've had the pleasure of having two major pandemics or not pandemics events rather uh, yes. over the last ten years we had the great recession of 2008 2009 we're i'm hoping we're getting on the back side of this pandemic i don't know you know things uh it depends on what you know the news and all the things that you read it seems like it's it's rearing its head a little bit but You know, these two events are major events as to how, you know, how we deal with each other. Do you think that these have fundamentally changed these two events, how community banks, the nature of community banks, and how they deal with their clients?
1: Yeah, I I I believe it. They are. I mean, they again, they're uh, really significant events. Now you have to think about this: is that we've had other pandemics. People don't people don't remember very much, but there was the what they called the German measles, back in the late '40s, early '50s. Although it wasn't really uh, German measles, it was actually from. from it, it was it was part of where it was de- where it was detected was in Germany more so than what caused it. And then then the polio right. epidemic. I mean, I grew up. Uh, two of my cousins uh, had polio, and yeah. and uh, you know those were things that interrupted. The normal course of business until everyone um, got the vaccine and so I think that's uh, we've experienced those before now these the two thousand and eight really um, was a was a significant financial problem where we 're experiencing really a a medical uh, issue today and so the the financial problem was really sort of the the overheating of the market and the um, uh focus if you will on craftily underwritten residential loans am i saying that right
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no that's very it's very politically correct i like yes the that.
1: <laughs> no 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 income no job no worries so right. so uh and what that did was that it, uh, it really uh, collapsed the secondary market i mean fannie and freddie still haven't come out of that um, right. uh problem uh today Uh, And so, you know, I think that this pandemic, this medical pandemic will change how we in the banking world, how we look at financing real estate in the future. If you look at where there are some significant vacancies in office space, in retail space, and uh, businesses that, uh, you know, just will never come back again, or at least if they come back, they're going to come back differently. Uh, some, Some businesses have adapted, right? um gone to uh gone to uh, online and their methods of of delivering their goods and services and some just couldn't do it and that's yeah. going to be a, that's going to be a change in the future
0: well and I, I also think that from the real estate perspective if you're building if you're in, you're in the retail business especially if you're in the restaurant business you're designing your building differently right yeah. so i think it's, it's going to change how you relate to customers and also how you build your buildings and how you do things and uh, i also think that uh you know community banks as they make real estate loans uh probably might have some opportunities with real estate that people are buying that need to be repurposed and reconfigured and i think that might be a really nice opportunity for community banks to get in there and and help local people get creative with real estate and and its uses Uh, you know back to the back to the 2008 period what do you think um certainly we had a lot of bad actors in 2008 there's no question yep. about that but i've always felt that you know there was a lot of policy that didn't help right uh, yes. policy built up over the late 80s and the late 90s and and uh, at, you know i think freddie and fanny were leveraged hundred one at one point yep. and you know that I think, because it's probably not a real fun talking point for politicians, our friends in Washington, to talk about. But that was a that was a big play as well. I mean, uh, they were buying everything, right?
1: Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If you if you could put uh, steam on a mirror, you could get a loan, and and uh, and they'd buy it from you. Yeah.
0: So yeah. it
1: was one of those uh, problems uh, that yeah. uh, I think is still still with us today to a certain degree, although uh credit standards uh collateral standards have uh, changed dramatically in the last uh, uh decade or so it's still it still could reel its ugly head especially now with uh uh you know some of the uh, after effect of the pandemic if the pandemic is after I, we, we don't yeah. know yet
0: right you know i i do <coughs> believe we have, you know certainly there's a lot of discussions about the foreclosure moratorium yeah, in uh, the and things like that. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, a lot. As you know, a lot of our clients are in great shape, uh, and so I think uh, our our client base is a good, in good good shape as a whole. But there are a number of banks out there that have somewhat of a hairball stuck in the in the drain in the pipe. That there's going to be some problems out there with uh, people not paying their rents and, and and things not making their payments. It's out there. It's just being covered up with all the liquidity. Of course, that's being injected in the system now. Uh, It really, you know, nothing like government stimulus to kind of hide some problems. And I think in this case, we're going to have some credit problems in selected uh, institutions and selected sectors. I don't know if it's going to be a whole industry wide issue, but I think it's going to be significant enough for the regulators to make it a big part of their exam process as they go forward in in that.
1: No doubt. You know, I think that's one of the things when uh, when uh, they started a few years ago with looking at uh, uh, what they called succession plans for the large uh, financial institutions—sort of the, uh, you know, what what are you what are you going to do if this happens or that happens—and they had to c- develop plans to be able to address um, uh, issues that would come up. Uh, that right. certainly has not been the case for moderate-sized institutions who may have concentrations of credit uh, that may be vulnerable. You know, uh, hotels and motels and entertainment venues and restaurants and things of that nature. So, uh, if they've got concentrations there, there's likely to be some challenges.
0: Yeah. You know, earlier we, in my opening remarks, I talked about, you know, supporting what I think is one of the most important industries we have, uh, the community banking space. And, you know, I just want to give a shout out to our community bankers because during this PPP situation, the industry really stepped up. And so many stories that I have heard from our clients, and and, and Artisan, we actually helped uh, banks process PPP loans, so we can relate to that, but, you know, working seven days a week, 12, 13 hours a day to process these loans that people needed, I I don't think uh, the press really gives the community banking space the credit they deserve for that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and the credit unions, to a certain degree, uh, really ramped up as well, so, um, you know, they're there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of these loans, which uh, in effect yeah. stabilized uh, uh, various industries. I happen to sit on the board of a manufacturer of plastic uh, film out in Ladd, Illinois, and uh, you know the PPP um, uh, and the uh, other support from the IRS helped to keep that company alive. Otherwise, it, w- it would have... Uh, going under and uh, and there's lots of stories out there like that
0: yeah yeah i'm i think in in general you know nothing's perfect uh it got off to a little bit of a rough start in terms of how to process and get the money but i think overall it was a good program saved a lot of jobs and i without it i don't know what we would have done it would have been a very terrible situation so hats off i think that was good legislation i think it was and the industry did it you know did their um patriotic duty uh, to get it done. And they did it. Yep. So, you know, here we are, summer of 2021, August. I can't believe it already. So here <laughs> we are. What, you know, at this point in time, you're sitting here, you're, you know, you and I and, and all the people are, so we're always talking about this community banking space and what's going on. How do you assess the present shape of the community bank space right now? or maybe the banking space in general, you know, how do, you, how do you feel about it? Where do you think it's
1: at? Well, I think if you, uh, if you look at this and say, all right, wh- what is the definition of a community bank? <laughs> You've got to start there. I look at a, a community bank, not necessarily in terms of asset size, but certainly in terms of its breadth in the, in, the, uh, in the marketplace itself. There are some very important roles that the community banks play. And if I can put on my CRA hat for just a minute, a great share of the what happens in, in the uh, in the community space, neighborhoods, and uh, 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 other uh, uh, rural uh, markets is driven by the, those financial institutions who are able to successfully serve the financial needs of the marketplace, whether it's low and moderate income or not. It doesn't make any difference. It's whether they're there to cash checks handle uh, handle uh, financial transactions provide advice i mean that's one of the the great things that uh, community banks do they know their community they know what kind of advice to give business people in the marketplace uh, uh to help them through uh, uh, this uh, pandemic led uh financial crisis so that's that's the important part of it and so i think that there's strength in the community banking space and it's driven by the fact that they don't get concentrations in assets they don't they aren't all uh, you know uh, uh one-track ponies if you will uh and the concentration that they may have in real estate they can work through so i think right. that's going to be okay
0: yeah i you know i i think to me um certainly you know there's a size definition that you can apply to a community bank but to me a community bank is more of an attitude yep. you know if it's one of those things that you could be four five six billion dollars but if you have a community bank attitude you know, you're a community bank and, and I think that's an important uh, uh, thing to do vice versa if you could be a small bank and not have a good community bank attitude at all and not it doesn't make you a community bank just because you're small it's an attitude. that's
1: right Yep. Um,
0: what do you think about you know a lot of technology a lot of talk about the trends you know we've got fintech. Uh, various payment strategies. Uh, banking as a service is getting a lot of play now. But from a technology standpoint, where do you see things shaking out? Do you see banks partnering up with fintechs? Do You see fintechs continuing to try to push into the, the space and become banks. How do you? Where do you see that shaking out?
1: One of the challenges that we've had in the in the banking industry is that there are independent institutions who pick off parts of what we do that's profitable. So mortgage banking industry, for instance, they, why? Because they were efficient, they were low cost, they could make money doing it. FinTech is sort of doing the same thing in a lot of ways. And there are several different um, uh, uh, roles for FinTechs to play in terms of bringing the industry along, bringing the banking industry along, in, in adding uh, efficiency, adding technology. That can help expand the service available to their customers, and uh, right. certainly I think that's an important part. Now, well, fintechs—I think there was there's been rumors of some fintechs looking to acquire banks. Um, I know that there have been a couple of banks that have acquired fintechs, so that uh, you know, again, to learn from them, I think is going to be important. Yeah. You know, when I <laughs> I keep thinking back in 1988 and 89. Uh, when i was out in uh, washington dc with uh, with what was then called columbia first bank we didn't have a pc there wasn't a pc in the whole bank right yeah. and right. and and so so there were these things that uh, uh the banking industry had learned in order to stay competitive if you if you don't keep up with technology you're going to be uh, uh left on the wayside
0: yeah you know i i think You know, I'm with with Artisan now and and we're supporting banks, but back in the day, you know, we all ran banks. You ran one, I ran one and and all of that. But if I were doing it today, I I think what I would do is I would probably go out and recruit some very smart, technology-driven people. I don't necessarily want them to be bankers. I may not even want them to be bankers. Right. And I put them in a room and I would say, okay, I'm gonna come back in a couple months. And I want to see what you guys have come up with. Here's all your here's some resources for you. I want you to come in, and in a couple of three months, I'll check on you from time to time, make sure you're getting lunch and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to wow me, if so I'll be back in three months, and I want you to do something really creative for me. And I, I think I might be a little bit facetious there, but I think if if some of our community banks and maybe small regional banks or or whatever size you're talking, if they took that kind of creative attitude. I think it would do two things. I think it would help this, the fintech um, issue and the, and and the payments issue, the technology issue. But I also think it would it would help in recruiting more people and young mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. They make it sexy, you know, a little more sexy. Banking's not been a real sexy business, but it would be. It would people would get in there and say, you know, I really think I could make a difference in regard to the technology.
1: Well, there was there was a bank that I, I did some research on back in Oh, maybe a decade or so ago, who basically hired new CPAs, and then they hired a bunch of them. I think it was 10 or 12 of them. They told them, I want you to look at every process that we have in this institution and tell me how we can do it better. I want you to look at every piece of technology that we use and tell us if it's right, if we're using it right, or if we should be looking at it later. That yeah. institution was one of the most profitable banks in the in the country. Again, it's been a decade or so, but that's right. what you need is what I would call. We always did it this way: interrupters.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's right. You know, think all the cliches, think out of the box, all that stuff. But uh, I do think young people and uh, you know are are challenged by. You know, there's technology so natural to them. Yeah. right it's just. It's their language, and so right. to bring some, see how technology applies to some old-fashioned banking processes, I think would be a good uh, thing. Um, Without a doubt. You know, we talked about the shrinking of, of the banks and, and things like that. We just recently had a new charter here in Chicago, first one in a decade, First right. Women's Bank.
1: First Women's Bank, yes. Yeah.
0: For congratulations to them. We wish them all the best, and, and they've a good crew there. Do you think, what role do the regulators have in promoting a community banking industry? Should the regulators more actively promoting charters?
1: Well, that's the way it used to be. (laughs) But it hasn't been that way really since, uh, especially since uh, 2008. Uh, And simply because when you think about it, there's only so much talent to go around, right? Yeah. So, uh, and there's only so much business uh that that can be done now there are certain uh, as i read uh, with about first women's bank it was its design and by the way i was on the board of one out in washington dc called first women's bank as well back in the 80s yeah <clears throat> and uh the focus was on women-owned businesses women in yeah. the in the professional field and all the rest of it the the problem with that is it really kind of limits right what that bank is able to sort of focus on Um, and as long as they're open uh, to other kinds of uh, depositors as well as other kinds of uh, loans, I think it's going to be uh, going to be successful. The leadership there I think is is wonderful and I think they're going to do a great job.
0: Yeah, we have talked about that situation in Chicago with that bank, but we're working with one group and maybe another group in Wisconsin right now that's putting together a, uh, a bank. And it's going to be a state-of-the-art technology fintech-driven bank. And some of the things that we're helping them with and they're working on is really amazing. So it's, it's just good to see de novos again. Yep. And um, I, I, I'm hopeful that we see more. And I hope, as you said earlier, I think for the longest time after the Great Recession, uh, regulators were actively discouraging
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah.
0: We bankers sometimes we're we're slow to learn, but we're also sometimes slow to forget. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know, they they tell us for a decade no banking, making a new bank, a uh, novo is not that great. It sticks in our mind, right? But it's it's good to see that maybe we're we're turning the corner a little bit there. Um, Tommy, we're getting close to the end, but I I, I wanted to bring up a topic that is close to you and, and something I know you're passionate about. Everyone knows you have a big heart and you've been involved in many charitable and nonprofit organizations over the years. Do you think community banking still has a significant role in the charitable and nonprofit activities and their communities at large? You think they still have a place in that?
1: Well, I think again, it gets back to what can you learn? So there are several what are called community development financial institutions in Chicago. One is called IFF, Illinois Facilities Fund, used to be. Um, the Chicago Community Loan Fund, where I sit on the board. Um, uh, CIC, Community Investment Corporation, which does financing of uh, small multifamily um, units. And and all of those have banking representatives on the board. So when you think about it, is it charitable? Well, yes, it's charitable. However, it is uh, is where you can learn where the risks are, who are the players? Where is it possible for you to, as a as a banking institution, play a role uh, in in delivering capital in capital stock markets? So that's that's the the thing. The other charitable things that I do, which are are wonderful and great, have very little to do with banking or credit. It's about serving um, populations that are adversely impacted uh, by mm. their own situation. So. Those are good things too. Neighborhood Lending Services, which is uh, a community development financial institution, part of NHS of Chicago, is a Freddie Mac seller servicer, right? But they originate in markets where it's difficult for the traditional banking industry and even the mortgage banking industry uh, to reach. So low dollar amount loans, right? So first time home buyers and they buy a house and their, their financing needs are $75,000. Well, I can tell you right now, the mortgage banking industry uh, wouldn't make a profit by making that loan. Right. So right. neighborhood lending services is a, in a position where it's supported with other donations and, and um, uh, things of that nature, can originate that loan, predominantly African-American and Hispanic, predominantly women owned uh, or, or uh, single woman head of household with kids. It's yeah. those sorts of markets that are un, uh, are sort of financial deserts. Uh, uh, people haven't been able to get into that. Uh, even right. with fintech. You <laughs> you have to have a certain uh, loan size in order to do it, and commission right. loan officers aren't necessarily motivated to uh, move in right. that direction. So, yeah. so I'm not criticized, but I'm saying you can learn from it, right? What are the what are the pitfalls of that type of uh, of loan? And so the banks in in the most part both what well, CIC and CCLF and IFF and MLS all those alpha dot soup yeah, they, inv- yeah. they they invest in the out, in the product that's produced right so okay. it's a way for them to learn
0: is it fair to say and, and you know we you know we're bankers and and uh but you know banking with the heart is not a bad thing right but is it is it a fair comment to say that if a bank wants to get involved in some kind of um, you know, low-income housing program, or something that's a, a bank-related program that is going to help community. That there's it, there's a multitude of options there, and it's just a matter of finding somebody to lead you in the right direction to fit that opportunity to your bank. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are um, I can't count them right now, but uh, you know, there are literally dozens of opportunities for the banking industry to provide capital uh, that's secure right that fits the, the standard uh, criteria um right. and and fills a a need <coughs> that uh, is being addressed by these nonprofits.
0: well thank you tommy we're at the end of our our time here i want to thank you tom so much for joining us today It's always fun to talk to you. You're a wealth of information and uh, enthusiasm. And so thanks for joining us. That's gonna wrap up things for us today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Tommy Fitzgibbon. If you have any questions for Tommy or any comments about Artisan Advisors Unfiltered, please email me. Uh, at Jay Atkins at Artisan Dash. There's a dash in there, artisan-advisors.com. Or check out our website. Uh, you can get in touch with any of us. So thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for our next podcast.